As you remain standing, I ask that you would take up your copy of God's Word and turn with me now to Philippians chapter 4. And I'll begin reading at verse 1 through verse 7, but the message today will come from verses 4 and 5. Hear now the word of the Lord. Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I implore Euodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I, say, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Our gracious Father in heaven, it is, it is so very good to return to your Word and to read and hear the words of life, the words that direct us to the love of the Savior and the words that satisfy both the deepest longing of our souls and the greatest need that we have. And as we do so, we humbly ask for help. Help us by the work of your Holy Spirit to receive and understand that which we most need. Show us your glory and show us how to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ to be gentle and lowly in heart, full of compassion, characterized by joy, and rich in mercy. And this we ask in His mighty name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> nice. Good start. <laughs> Well, brothers and sisters, we come again to the preaching from this wonderful epistle the Apostle Paul wrote to the Philippian church, and it is a great joy to do so. But I would like for us this morning to, to set our minds with a certain gravity upon his exhortation, set it in the context of our Christian lives. We are a blessed people. God has called us out of darkness into light. He has placed His love upon us. He has given us the gospel, and we are able to be His children and call upon the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord of our lives. And yet we see in His Word that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. So opens the psalmist in verse 1 of Psalm 14. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in reflecting upon this psalm, wrote, There can be no doubt at all but that the greatest matter confronting every man and woman born into this world is that which is put before us in, by this statement in Psalm 14. 
nothing surely can be more important than this question of our relationship to God. In chapter 2 of Paul's letter to the Philippians, he described the world in which we live as a crooked and perverse generation. Not only is this an apt description of the generous generation living during Paul's life, but it is also an accurate description of every generation in which so many people deny God and say in their hearts, there is no God. Thus they follow the fallen desires of their hearts and minds and manifest a departure from the straight and narrow paths of, of God and so constitute a crooked and perverse generation. Paul wrote this to Titus, For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. In his second letter to Timothy, he wrote, But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. Harsh words, but true words from the living God. This is the, the natural way of the unregenerate man. We don't have to look too far and wide to have this truth confirmed before our very eyes this day, do we? And that's the easy part. But as we encounter this reality, as we, we consider the unimpeachable testimony of Scripture concerning the natural state of man, we need to let all of that external confirmation of depravity drive us to an internal evaluation of our own hearts of our own behaviors, our own thoughts, our own desires, and even our rebellions against the God who created us. We need to ask ourselves, what is it that we truly love? John exhorts the church to not love the world or the things of the world because if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Brothers and sisters, do you love the world and the things in the world too much? Do the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life drive your priorities, your plans, and your decisions? Are you so consumed with your desires, your issues, your disappointments that there is little to no check in your spirit to ask, what is it that God desires? Is your life so consumed with busyness, Worries, distractions, and 
entertainment, that you set aside almost no time to consume the Word of God or to commune with Him in prayer. Or perhaps you have the other problem. Is life so discouraging and filled with hopeless despair that you find yourself longing for it to be all over? To be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Perhaps you've even convinced yourself that this is a holy longing. But we need to know that that is not how the Lord prayed. As Jesus prayed to the Father in His high priestly prayer, He said, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. This life, this good life, this new life that God has given to each one of His people is far more important and far more valuable than we can imagine. We fall into error when we focus only on the temporal aspects, those things that that only satisfy our bellies, and, and we also fall into error when we neglect those things and only long for eternity. We are called to live life today in the light of eternity. We are called to rejoice in the Lord always, even when life is difficult, and discouraging, or perhaps I should say, especially when life is difficult. God is at work in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. He is working all things, the good, the bad, and even the ugly, together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. So I ask again, are you discouraged? Are you fearful? Have you neglected the spiritual nourishment your soul so desperately needs? Then stop. Regain your bearings. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. Again, I will say, rejoice. It is such a helpful perspective to see how the Apostle Paul situates this call to rejoice in the Lord. Having called the church to stand fast in the Lord, he then entreats Euodia and Syntyche to reconcile and urges Clement and his other fellow workers to help him do so. We see here a snapshot of the Christian life being lived in the light of eternity. Confident that their names are written in the book of life, Paul is simply calling the church to stand fast in the Lord and to be found faithful, bringing the gospel to bear in every situation of their lives. Whether it be a disagreement between two sisters as we see here, or in any situation where we stumble, sin, and fall short of what God has revealed, we're called to stand fast in the Lord, to repent and believe the gospel to be found faithful in our service to one another, and to rejoice in the Lord. In this life, in this good life, there will be troubles. There will be disagreements. There will be struggles, genuine struggles. And you do, and you will sin. 
The question is, how will you respond? What characterizes your life as a Christian in these situations? Will you dig in your heels and cling to your sin? Will you hang on to offenses and become bitter? Will you fail to repent, fail to seek reconciliation, or fail to forgive? Will you yield to despair and try to heal your wounds with the salve of self-pity? Or will you give in to your flesh and rage and indignation at the providence of God? These things, these responses will only compound your sin and in them you will find no comfort and you will find no relief. These are the responses of a debased mind. These are not the responses that flow out of having the mind of Christ. Not at all. Paul tells the church to let your gentleness be known to all men. Is your life characterized by gentleness? So that everyone who knows you would easily agree that you are a gentle person? So what does Paul mean here by gentleness? Many commentaries acknowledge the Greek word that Paul uses is difficult to translate with a single English word. The KJV translates it here as moderation. But in other verses, it translates the same word as patient and gentle. The NASB uses the phrase gentle spirit. The ESV translates it reasonableness. And Young's literal translation uses forbearance. And as we consider these various words here that are used in these translations, we begin to see more of the fullness of what the apostle is describing as that which is to be characteristic of the Christian life. Dane Ortland opens the first chapter of his book, Gentle and Lowly, this way. We learn much in the four Gospels about Christ's teaching. We read of His birth, His ministry, and His disciples. We are told of His travels and prayer habits. We find lengthy speeches and repeated objection by His hearers, prompting further teaching. We learn of the way He understood Himself to fulfill the whole Old Testament. And we learn in all four accounts of His unjust arrest and shameful death and atoning resurrection. Consider the thousands of pages that have been written by theologians over the past 2,000 years on all of these things, but only in one place. Perhaps the most wonderful words ever uttered by human lips do we hear Jesus Himself open up to us His very heart. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. In the one place in the Bible where the Son of God pulls back the veil and lets us peer way down to the core of who He is, we are not told that He is austere and demanding in heart. We are not told that He is exalted and dignified in heart. We're not even told that He is joyful and generous in heart. 
Letting Jesus set the terms, his surprising claim is that he is gentle and lowly in heart. And while a different Greek word is used here in Matthew's gospel than in the letter to the Philippians, there is significant overlap in their meaning in the realm of gentleness. In commenting on this word in Philippians 4, verse 5, Calvin suggests that we may understand Paul to be exhorting the church to endure all things with sweetness and patience, noting it is a term that is made use of by the Greeks themselves to denote a moderation in spirit. When we are not easily moved by injuries, when we are not easily annoyed by adversity, but retain equanimity of temper, temper. Paul therefore directs the Philippians to conduct themselves peaceably in everything and exercise control over themselves even in the endurance of injuries or inconveniences. Let your gentleness be known to all men. Gentleness, forbearance, yieldedness, geniality, kindness, meekness, sweet reasonableness, considerateness, charitableness, modesty, mildness, magnanimity, generosity. There's a whole family of words that could be brought into our understanding of the gentleness Paul is bringing in this imperative. Is this who you are? Are these words that people would use in speaking of your character and of your demeanor? There is an antithesis between Christ-like gentleness and worldliness. We are to walk and speak and relate and respond in a way that is distinctly different from the world. James asked the rhetorical questions. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? And the obvious answer to these questions is, of course not. Of course not. And then James continues. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, and then peaceable, gentle willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Do you see the antithesis here? Do you see the contrast? Do you see that not comporting your life in gentleness is earthly, sensual, and demonic? Is there bitter envy and self-seeking in your heart? Then you are binding and entangling the working out of your faith and your profession with hypocrisy. And you are bearing false witness against the truth. 
there is to be a quality of godliness that derives from the character of the Lord Himself. As Paul also shows in his use of this term as he pleads with the Corinthians by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. We find that in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And this gentleness must be made known to all men, to everyone. We shouldn't overlook this important qualifier as Paul expects believers to express this gentleness not merely to fellow believers, but he's to show this gentleness to all. And please note, this is not somehow being a doormat for others to walk all over you, but a disposition that extends kindness to others just as God in Christ has been kind to us when we were His enemies. Do people see such gentleness in your life? And just to reiterate a point, in no way is Paul calling the Philippians to compromise the truth for the sake of their testimony. The church is to be full of gentleness and full of boldness. We can have both at the same time. Paul was bold in dealing with the sin in the Corinthian church, but he was also gentle. Because he knew what the stakes were, he was gentle. He understood the nature of the battle. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. If you think that letting your gentleness be known to all is somehow compromising your strength or your position in, in the cultural battle that surrounds us, you are misunderstanding gentleness. You are misapprehending the nature of the battle, or both. Paul withstood Peter to his face when the gospel was at stake, yet they remained brothers and fellow soldiers for the sake of the Lord, for the sake of the gospel. Everyone in this room will at one time or another find yourselves at odds with a brother or a sister in the church. There will be a disagreement. There will be hurt feelings or even a genuine offense. It may be based on a misunderstanding and a failure to communicate, or it may be rooted in a fleshly incident of anger, hatred, or malice. There may be a genuine cause for the offense. In those times, you are called to let your gentleness, your reasonableness, your moderation be known as those whose names are written in the book of life. You are not limited to worldly wisdom or natural philosophy in how you respond. The tools at your disposal are not carnal, but mighty in God. These tools are not proud or self-centered or exalting against the knowledge of God, but rather work to bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. But we have to confess this is not always easy, is it? And it certainly, it certainly isn't natural. How can anyone possibly bring every thought captive? 
Consider these words from Isaiah 55. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and He will have mercy on him and to our God, for He will abundantly pardon. Why? Why would God do this? Isaiah continues, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. This is our God. This is our merciful God. The battle of the Christian life is to bring your own heart into alignment with Christ, to reshape your thoughts after those of Christ, and to have this mind which is in Christ, as Paul exhorted the Philippians in chapter 2. You're not to be conformed to this world, but rather you are to be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The simple fact is that none of us will escape this world without having our brains washed. Either our minds will be soaked in the filth, foolishness, and falsehood propagated and promoted by the enemy, or they will be cleansed by the washing of the water of the Word and renewed in Christ's likeness. And the result is that you will either reject Paul's command to let your gentleness be known to all men, or you will hear and heed his command. Either you will despise the riches of Christ's goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, or you will know and accept that it is the goodness of God that leads to your repentance. So which will it be? May we hear and heed and take heart to the apostle's good and righteous command. In addition to the command, let your gentleness be made known to all, Paul provides the reason for doing so. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is near. Not only is this the reason we are to be characterized by gentleness, but it is also the how we are to do so. The Lord is at hand. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. The Lord is at hand. Forsake your old ways. Forsake your old thoughts. Walk in the Spirit and don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. The Lord is at hand. He is there for you every step of the way. And you fulfill the lust of your flesh when you do the works of the flesh. What are the works of the flesh? You you have read them many times. They are are self-evident, Paul informs the Galatians. They include adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. It's a big list. Don't just hear murders here. Hear all the rest. And then Paul goes on to contrast those with the fruit of the Spirit. What is the fruit of the Spirit? It's love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. 
friends, as, as you read or hear these descriptions of the works of the flesh, do you find that you all too easily fall into outbursts of wrath? Or given to selfish ambitions, envy, and the like. And you struggle to experience the fruit of the Spirit. Does that describe you? Have you been there? Are you there right now? Well, don't despair. Don't despair. Don't despair. The Lord is at hand. As John Newton observed, our, our sins are many, but His mercies are more. Our sins are great, but His righteousness is even greater. We are weak, but He is power. Most of our complaints are owing to unbelief and the remainder of a legal spirit. I think that's a keen observation. And so as you see the truth in this observation, your great need is to put off unbelief and to put on faith. To put off a legal spirit and to put on the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are in Christ, this is His gift and what you are called to do. This is His gracious work in your life. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. The gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. It's yours in Christ. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound, wrote John Newton. Such amazing love, Wesley penned in his great hymn. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? You can't earn such an amazing love. You can't do anything to merit such amazing grace. It is a gift. A gift. And it's yours. The Lord is at hand. He is near. Call upon Him while He is near. Trust in Him when you stumble and fall flat on your face. Trust in His promises. Repent. Believe the good news. And let your gentleness be known to all men. How can you possibly proclaim the gospel and simultaneously not trust the gospel for your life, for every day and every moment of your life? You need to know that all of your righteousness, all of the good works that you do in your own strength are worthless. Its currency holds no value in the economy of our perfectly holy and righteous God. So trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Look to Him. Look to His righteousness. God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He hath loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For those not in Christ... 
this life, with all its heartache, pain, bitterness, and sin, is as good as it gets. For those in Christ, however, this life is not only the beginning of something, it is only the beginning of something much more beautiful and much better. And when you are in Christ, you can rejoice in Him through it all. We can take the Apostle's exhortation to heart and live it out in our lives. The Lord is near. The Lord is at hand. I would like for you to hear now these words from Jonathan Edwards. In that resurrection morning when the Son of Righteousness shall appear in the heavens, shining in all His brightness and glory... He will come forth as a bridegroom. He shall come in the glory of His Father with all His holy angels. That will be a joyful meeting of this glorious bridegroom and bride indeed. Then the bridegroom will appear in all His glory without any veil. And the saints shall shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father and at the right hand of their Redeemer. Then will come the time when Christ will sweetly invite His spouse to enter in with Him into the palace of His glory, which He had been preparing for her from the foundation of the world, and shall, as it were, take her by the hand and lead her in with Him. And this glorious bridegroom and bride shall, with all their shining ornaments, ascend up together into the heaven of heavens, the whole multitude of glorious angels waiting upon them, And this son and daughter of God shall, in their united glory and joy, present themselves together before the Father when Christ shall say, Here am I, and the children which thou hast given me. And they shall both in in that relation and union together receive the Father's blessing and shall thenceforth rejoice together in consummate, uninterrupted, immutable and everlasting glory in the love and embraces of each other and joint enjoyment of the love of the Father, end quote. When you are in Christ, when you belong to Him, when you trust Him as Lord of your life in all things, when you daily, moment by moment, repent and believe the gospel for your salvation, This, my friends, is your inheritance. Do you realize that this is true of you if you are in Christ? Those in union with Him are promised that all of the brokenness that infects everything, every relationship, every conversation, every family, every thought, everything, everything will one day be made right. God will wipe away every tear. There will be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There will be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be made known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Let's pray. Our good and gracious Father, we gather before the glory of Your presence, broken by our sin, but rejoicing in Christ. 
We are humbled that in your great love and mercy and by your generous grace in Christ, the bonds and chains of sin and death have been broken. And the darkness has been displaced by the glory and splendor of His marvelous light. O Lord, keep us safely within Your omnipotent hand. Show us more of Christ. Lead us in the path we should go. Humble us in our pride and stir us up in our lethargy. Clothe us in the righteousness of Christ and let His gentleness be the gentleness with which we engage all men and which characterizes His work in us. And this we ask for the glory of our God, for the beauty of the gospel, and for the advancement of your kingdom. For we pray with confidence in his mighty name, the name of our Lord and Savior, even Jesus Christ. Amen.